Well, hey, uh, good morning, LifePoint. Glad to be with you here uh, online. My name is Kale. I'm the teaching pastor at the Delaware campus. Guests, grateful to have you here uh, with us as well. We are closing out a series that we've been in for over three months now. We've been in this label series, walking our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've read the Gospel of Luke. We've prayed through the Gospel of Luke. We've encouraged folks to share uh, with others, folks who don't know and love Jesus, to share what you've been learning in the Gospel of Luke, just to share Jesus. And so as we close out the series today, we're going to be closing out the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 24. Uh, If you've got a Bible, you can go there, Luke 24. The big idea of the whole series as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke has been uh, that the Gospel calls us to a life above labels. One of the things that we notice as we look at the Gospel of Luke is that uh, Jesus has this habit of consistently stepping past the labels that people have put in culture. Uh, Their culture really not uh, too dissimilar from our culture in that way that people were labeled and then you get put in that camp and then, hey, we don't like that camp. And so people were called prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and uh, just really the unclean, right? You, you can't be around those people. Those people don't deserve grace. And, and Jesus comes to them and says, sinner, right? Come, repent and follow me. Tax collector, repent and follow me. Prostitute, repent, be healed, Right, come and follow me. Let me show you who you are in Christ and also religious person, right? Self-righteous, humble yourself. Come, follow me. Jesus steps past those labels, calls people to follow him and, and really says, man, if, if I can say it this way, the only label you should have is that is of Jesus follower, redeemed son or daughter of God. That's all that truly matters. And last week we were in Luke, uh, near the end of Luke, Luke 23, looking at the crucifixion in depth. Uh, Just the astounding reality that the creator was willingly murdered by his creation, willingly stepped into that. The creator murdered by the creation in order to save the creation. That Jesus came to his own people. His own people did not recognize him, but instead put him up on a cross, lifted him up, not to a throne, though he would land on the throne, but lifted him up on a cross, hung him, And the scriptures tell us God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus hangs on the cross to pay our sin debt, to absorb into himself the just wrath of God against our sin, and then says, I'm crediting to you my sinless life. That's the, we said it last week, that's the story of the gospel. When you, if you zoom out, right, if you're listening right now and maybe you don't have a lot of familiarity with the Christian message or you're not a believer, I mean, just to zoom out and be reminded, what, what is it? It is that God created mankind. God creates the world and it's good. He creates mankind and our relationship with each other and with him is perfect. And then mankind rebels against God and sin enters the world and it fractures it from top to bottom, inside out, our relationship with each other fractured, with the creation fractured, with God fractured. But God doesn't look at us and say, you know what, too bad, so sad. He doesn't stay distant, but instead he comes to us. The New Testament shows us how God draws near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You look in the Old Testament, you see that God gives promises. He says, no, one is coming who is going to make this right One is coming who's going to redeem. Then he gives the law. And what the law does is really shows the people of Israel and shows you and me. We can't fix ourselves. We can't live up to God's good standard. We can't do enough good works. We're not. We're we're sinful and broken. 
And then Jesus comes. God gives then Jesus his own son who fulfills the law for us and does what we can't. He lives the life that we should have lived but couldn't because of sin, dies the death that we deserve on the cross, takes God's just wrath against sin, and then gives us his perfect spotless righteousness. And then three days later, on the third day, God raises Jesus from the grave. And as we'll say this morning, the resurrection validates the crucifixion, proves to us it was enough. Jesus really did defeat death and sin and hell, and we have hope and new life because of him. That is the gospel. And it's so important that I basically just preached my sermon, but that's the gospel. And I want you to hear that because some of us, maybe, maybe not Christians, some of us would maybe even call ourselves Christians, but you've probably heard some version of Christianity that sounds like this. Do more, be better. Do more and be better. Stop sinning. Don't cuss. Don't drink too much or don't drink at all. Stay away from that. Go to church. Clean yourself up. But that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't here's the things you need to do. The gospel is here's what's been done for you. The gospel isn't you need to clean yourself up. The gospel is Jesus did the cleaning. He was hung for you and for me. He was raised again that we might have new life in him. And yes, when you begin to follow Jesus and you're forgiven by him, your life does change. Yes, you should stop doing that and start doing this. But, but it's not, hey, clean yourself up first and, and then maybe God will love you. It's God loved you. He demonstrated that by sending Jesus for you while you were still a sinner. Come to him. Turn from your sin. Repent, right? The, the gospel is this. Jesus died and rose again. Repent and believe. Jesus died and rose again. It's done, finished. Repent, turn from your sin, believe, trust him with your life. Find your life in him. I was talking to a guy a few months ago in explaining this and, and he just, he'd had a hard life. He made some really bad decisions. But we got to the point where I, by the grace of God, just, I got to look at him and say, man, you don't have to beat yourself up anymore because Jesus was beaten for you. Jesus was beaten for you. You don't have to beat yourself up anymore. And by the grace of God, I felt like the Holy Spirit in that moment lifted his eyes, unblinded him, and he was like, oh my goodness, that's right. I don't. Like he understood, I don't have to keep living in shame or condemnation or beating myself up anymore because Jesus took all of that for me. The worst punishment I can have is I could be killed for what I've done. Jesus already got killed and he rose again so that we might have new life. Now, today I want to focus on that aspect that he rose again, the resurrection, because that's where Luke takes us here in 24 as he closes out his gospel. Luke 24, verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They, being some of the ladies uh, who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. I'll just note, they're taking spices to prepare his body for burial. Okay, one commentator noted this. None of the gospels have people approaching the tomb, the women coming to the tomb, expecting to see Jesus alive. Sometimes critics have been like, you know what? Maybe the, uh, the women and the disciples, they just really wanted Jesus to be alive and they really were like expecting that. So uh, they kind of believed it into existence. They convinced themselves that's what happened. None of the gospels portray it that way. None of the gospels say they were all waiting with anticipation on the third day. They approached there with spices to just further prepare his dead body for burial. None of the disciples were sitting around waiting in anticipation. They were surprised by joy. 
surprised by finding the empty tomb. And that's what they found, verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. If you're listening today and you're a Christian, let me just say this. And if you're not a Christian, right, I'll say it to you as well. Our faith, the Christian faith, hinges on this historical reality. The Christian faith is not about feelings. It's not about positive thinking. It's not a self-improvement program. It is based on this historical fact and truth that Jesus died and then he rose again. That he died once for our sins, once and for all, and then proving that what he did was enough. The resurrection validates the crucifixion. On the third day, God raised him from the dead and he defeated death and hell and sin It's enough, it's finished, we're forgiven, and Jesus is alive. And you and I, because he lives, we too can live. But our faith is based on this, being true. If Jesus wasn't raised from the grave, the Apostle Paul later tells us, we have no hope. We are most to be pitied. But if Jesus was raised from the grave, then we have such hope. We have the only hope, Jesus, the only hope for life eternal. Now, verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, these are angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. So they point them back. This is the consistent witness of Jesus all throughout uh, his time on earth. He kept telling you, remember when he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man was the term Jesus most often used for himself, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. We said it last week um, about the crucifixion. I'll say it again about the resurrection, that the two really form one event in a sense. This was always the plan. This was always the plan. Do you notice Luke said, the Son of Man must rise. He's quoting Jesus, the Son of Man must rise and be crucified, or must crucified, and then rise on the third day. He must be delivered over to sinful men, and then crucified, and then be raised on the third day. This was not plan B. Uh, God didn't create mankind, and when mankind sinned, he's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? This was the plan. As, as seemingly crazy as it may be, I think, I think really when you understand it, it's astoundingly beautiful that God would know, I am going to send my son, For the lost. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. I see that mankind has turned away from me, right? But this has always been the plan, is that I'll send my son as the rescuer, who will be delivered over to sinful men, who will be crucified, but then on the third day, rise again to give us hope. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. I'll note as well that all four Gospels record the ladies being there first. The women of such a privileged position in Jesus' ministry and in redemption history. They're the first ones who encounter uh, the empty tomb, who encounter Christ And especially in their culture, many of us probably have heard this before, but in their culture, women, they were not allowed to give testimony in court. And so it's fascinating that all four gospel authors, as they tell the story, if they were trying to fabricate a story to say, hey, we really want you to believe us, they would have put men there. They would have put men being the first ones to tell the story, but that's not how it happened. 
In God's economy, things work differently. And it's the women who come there first and have this privileged position of seeing the resurrected Jesus, hearing from the angels and encountering the empty tomb. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them, that is to the disciples, to the ones they came back to, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So the men don't listen. There's probably a whole sermon there, right? Men don't listen or men not listening. Specifically like guys, like let's listen more to the godly women in our lives. Probably a whole message there, but we don't have time for it uh, today. Maybe another day. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. I love how straightforward that is. At first, it's almost a little shocking. Luke doesn't give a bunch of commentary on the meaning of it all or what. That's, that's later, right? Kind of throughout the course of the New Testament and the letters of Paul reflecting back on what happened. But it's just this straightforward. Jesus was crucified and then the tomb was empty. Jesus crucified, and now he's risen again. Why are you looking for the dead among the living? He's not here. He's risen. Now, I want to take us into the next section here where Luke tells us what happened after in the aftermath of this. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, processing what had, what, I mean, really processing what just happened, the grief the disappointment. And two of them, by the way, it's not, uh, not the 11, right? Was the 12. Judas is uh, dead. It's, it's not the 11. It's, it's one of the, we think, one of the 120, two of the 120, uh, who are sort of the core group left after the crucifixion happens, the ones we see in the early part of Acts. And it says as they're walking, they're talking with each other about all that had happened, the crucifixion of Christ, their hopes shattered, the disillusionment, the grief, the trauma of all of it. And I love what verse 15 says. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Praise God. Jesus comes to us and walks with us and draws near to us in the midst, right in the midst of the grief, of the disillusionment, of the pain, of the hurt, of the disappointment. We said it last week, grace meets us right where we are. Jesus can meet you right where you are today. I don't know all of what you're feeling. I don't know all of what you're dealing with. I don't know if this is a good season or a bad season, but I'll say whatever season, Jesus can meet you right there. Would you ask him today? Jesus, will you just meet me where I am? Jesus drew near to them. Now, verse 16 is interesting, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The text, it's what's called a divine passive, right? It's this idea of God is keeping them from recognizing Jesus. And you might see that and go, why? Why would God keep them? Why wouldn't God grant them the ability to like look and, oh, Jesus, right? And they could, they could be happy immediately, right? All their hopes restored. Why would God do that? It's because he's got a bigger purpose for what's happening here. Right now, as we're gonna see, they don't have a full understanding of really who Jesus is or what he came to do. They've got some wrong conceptions and wrong beliefs about what it is that Jesus came to do. That's why they're so disillusioned because they didn't expect this. They can't reconcile it with their theology. And so Jesus comes to them and God keeps them from being able to recognize him so that Jesus as a seeming stranger can lead them and teach them and bring them into deeper knowledge of the truth. God's got a bigger and better purpose for what he's doing here. And so it's such a good reminder to me, such a good reminder. You read stuff like this, you see stuff like this, and we experience stuff like this where God does something that's confusing 
or maybe even seems kind of hurtful or harsh or unkind. And it's so tempting, right, to like, God, why would you do that? Or God, I'm angry with you or whatever it may be. But it's a good reminder when God does those things, he's a good father and he's got a good purpose. He has a good purpose. So many of you uh, know this. My wife and I, so our, in our family, uh, six or eight weeks ago, eight, eight, actually eight or nine weeks ago now, um, one, one of our daughters, Allie, was attacked by a dog, and it was a pretty significant and severe attack. We ended up in the hospital for eight days uh, with her. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, the night, uh, the night that we were in the hospital, we were already beginning to see a lot of God's activity in, in the midst of this, and yet, I, like, I did not feel this way. I didn't feel good about what was happening. I was scared. I was, she was in surgery for three, four hours, right? I mean, I was struggling, struggling to believe and to trust God. You've got a bigger purpose than what's, you're a kind father. I mean, I'm just praying like, Lord, I just, I had just preached on uh, the wind and the waves and how if Jesus is in the boat with you, you got nothing to be afraid of. I was afraid. Like I failed in that moment. I'm just like, Lord, I just need the wind and the waves to stop. That's basically what I was saying. I just needed to be okay, and then it'll be okay. Like, it was hard to just trust in that moment. I failed in a lot of ways. But you know what? So I say that to say, I know it doesn't always feel that way. Like, I know some of us are going through stuff right now where you're like, it's hard to believe that God is good and that he's faithful and that he has a purpose in the midst of it. But he does. And sometimes our feelings betray us. And sometimes we lose heart and we lose faith. And I just want to encourage you this morning, God's a really good father and he's really patient with us. We can go to him and say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my doubt and my unbelief and help me to remember that even when you do things that don't seem to make sense, and we don't always get to see, right? Uh, I'm grateful. Morgan and I, we've seen a ton of what we just call gospel fallout out of that situation. So many stories, so many conversations now. Gospel conversations, people connecting to our church through this. Like, it's been amazing. We know we don't always get to see all of what God's doing. But he's a good father. And we come back to this and we come back to the word and we see Jesus. When he's doing something, when God's doing something, we don't fully understand, withhold judgment and trust him. God, I know you're good. And when we fail, we repent, we confess it, and we receive mercy because God's really patient with us. Verse 17, they're kept from understanding who Jesus is and seeing him. And Jesus has a conversation with them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? So Jesus comes and as a stranger, he's like, so what are you guys talking about? And listen to this. It says, they stood still looking sad. Again, they're disillusioned, disappointed, confused. Then one of them uh, named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? The way we would say this today is like, man, do you live under a rock? (laughs) Where have you been? Do you not have social media? Right? It's been all over that. It's been all over the news. Like what, where have you been? How can you possibly not know what's been going on? And Jesus says to them in, in verse 19, and he said to them, what things? No, what you talking about? And they said to him, right, again, he's leading them ultimately to a deeper knowledge of the truth. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one 
to redeem Israel. There's so, there's so much there. This is really, really important. So one, they say he was a prophet, mighty indeed. One commentator that I read said that's not necessarily a negative statement, right? We're not to be too harsh with them. But I, I don't think they, I think it shows they don't have a full understanding of really who Jesus is or was. So, so Jesus said he was the son of man, the son of God, right? That he came, the Messiah. And, and they don't call him the Messiah or the son of God. They say he was a prophet, right? I think shows a little bit they, they're not full understanding of what he was doing. They're confused, maybe doubting him a little bit. And then they go on to say, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And there's a little bit of irony to that. He is the redeemer of Israel. He is redeeming them. He has done that through the cross, just not in the way that they expected. And that's so key to understanding this. So uh, Warren Wearsby, one uh, pastor and commentator, says this. He asks, what was their basic problem? These two guys. Guys who had been, I mean, presumably with Jesus for some time, had seen many of his works, had heard many of the things that he had said in his teachings, and yet somehow missed it. He says, they did not believe all that the prophets had written about the Messiah. That was the problem with most of the Jews in that day. They saw Messiah as a conquering redeemer, but they did not see him as a suffering servant. As they read the Old Testament, they saw the glory, but not the suffering, the crown, but not the cross. What he's saying here is uh, in in the first century, in in Jesus's day, many of the Jewish people had a a notion or a belief that the Messiah, he was coming, and what he was going to do for them was he was going to be a military political figure who would deliver them from Rome. The Messiah, when he comes, we're taking back our nation. That's what he's going to do. And it seems like these two guys, even though they'd been around Jesus and they'd heard Jesus, they didn't believe, they didn't hear truly what he said he was going to do. Multiple times he told them, the Son of Man must be crucified and then raised from the grave. That's how salvation's going to come. But they kept thinking, no, no, no. We thought he was going to be the one who was going to deliver us, redeem Israel, deliver us. How could this be? They couldn't reconcile the crucified Savior, the Son of Suffering, as we've been singing about, and the fact that, well, no, he's supposed to be the Messiah who redeems us, who takes our nation back. They couldn't bring these two things together because they had a wrong view of who God was and specifically what the Messiah was going to do. And I I hear that and I see some parallels. I wonder how many of us may be in a similar boat today. That some of us, our view of God, of Jesus, has been more shaped by the culture cultural expectations about who God is or what he's supposed to do than the scriptures. That we've not really listened to Jesus's words about who Jesus is, about the scriptures and looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament saying, who is God? Who is Jesus? But maybe we've listened more to our buddy, social media, the news, films, television, our own hearts, our own thoughts, and we've let that really shape our view of God. And so what happens tragically is that we build up this God in our minds who doesn't really exist. And so when he doesn't, when the real God, right, doesn't act in the ways that we think he should, we get angry or we get disillusioned because the God that we thought was supposed to do this for us doesn't do that. And so we're tempted to reject God or like these guys get disillusioned and disappointed. And how could this be? But it's, we were believing in a God that never really existed in the first place. I want to address, I'm going to come back to that here in a moment. Let me address those of us. Some of us are disillusioned and hurt, not, not because of our view of God. Um, we're really hurt because of God's people. Um, 
I, I have, in the years of ministry, one of the most consistent conversations I've had with people are people who have experienced church hurt. Um, I don't know if that's just where we live. Uh, I, think that's part of, I think that's part of it is where we live. Many, many people. I've, certainly, I've talked to some folks who are like, I'm an atheist. I've talked to some folks who are, I'm agnostic, right? Or, but a lot of folks, and maybe if they're even in those camps, a lot, a lot of folks are like, I, I grew up in the church. And maybe I'm still even a believer, but I was hurt by legalism, by harshness, by a bad relationship, by abusive leadership. And man, I, I just want to encourage, really want to encourage some of us this morning. Um, you know, our church is not perfect. I'm not perfect. Our leadership isn't perfect. Our people aren't perfect. But by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been allowed, God has used us, and we've been allowed to be a part of a lot of people's stories in finding healing in those spaces. Joining and in the context of relationship and through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, finding that, you know what, that doesn't have to be the last word as far as your church involvement. That, doesn't, that, that chapter doesn't have to define the whole book for you. And that God may, he can, he can heal that, uh, he can even use what you've experienced and he can bring and give you good relationships with other believers in the context of the church. And my hope for you is if that's where you are, just church hurt. Uh, I don't know if I want to get involved, that you'll take a step. And I know it may be slow and that's okay, but that you'll take a step and get involved and find a life group when we launch our life groups in September. If you've never been here and, and joined us in person to do that and begin to step into relationship. For some of us, it's just, Church hurt, not necessarily our view of God, but the experience we've had with uh, God's people. But for some of us, it is that we've got a culturally informed view of God, wrong expectations of what God is supposed to do. And, and that's really where the problem is. I, I was listening to uh, just a pastor today, actually, uh, and he said this so well. He said, man, it really matters, like your view of God if you view God as, as basically a, a personal assistant. So he was using the idea of training. And he was talking about like, if you're eating donuts, right? And, and you view God more like the, the trainer, the good trainer who comes by and says, you can't be eating a donut and takes your donut. Uh, Pastor Quan was his name. Quan, he's from a, uh, out in um, the Bay Area. It was such a good illustration. He said, like, if you have a donut and the trainer comes by and takes it from you, you're, you're not like mad. You might be a little mad at the trainer, but you're like, I know that he's doing like what is best for me. But if your personal assistant comes and snags your donut, he's like, then you get really mad. You're like, why would you take, you're like, what are you doing? Who are you to take my donut? And, and I thought, I listening to that, I'm like, that's so good. He's like, depending on your view of God, it will, it will shape your expectations and how you respond to the things that God does in your life. We've said it before, not personal assistant, but like genie. If you view God as just a genie who's supposed to grant you wishes, that's not the God of the Bible. You're going to be really angry, frustrated, disappointed, and disillusioned like these two. But here's the really good news. The good news is that the response to that isn't, hey, walk away from God. Get to know the real God. Get into the Word. Study the Word. Open the Bible. Read it. We started this series uh, saying, hey, read the Gospel of Luke. If you didn't do that, read it. Read the Gospel of Luke. Read the Acts after that. Read the other Gospels. Read the New Testament. Get into the Old Testament. Find a mature believer to help you. Uh, reach out to us. We'll help you, right? Let's read the Word together and get to know the real God. And you're going to find the real God is so much better. It may not be easier. 
He challenges us. He contradicts us sometimes, tells us, no, 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 your thought process is wrong here. You have to humble yourself here. But ultimately, you're going to find that the real God, the real Jesus is better than whatever counterfeit God or counterfeit Jesus you've been given. He's so much better. And he's patient with us. Let me just remind us of that again. He is patient with us. So as you open the word, as you deal with disappointment, disillusionment, anger, whatever it may be, God is good and patient. He'll draw near, ask him, and he'll walk you through it. Let's look, keep looking at the text here. Yes, they say to Jesus, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, there's a little bit of a rebuke here, right? Gentle, he said, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's like, guys, you, you should have seen this coming, right? I told you about it multiple times. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? and enter into his glory. Don't you realize that before the glory comes the cross? Before the crown comes the cross. Before the glory comes the suffering in your place. And beginning, look at this, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Like, what a Bible lesson. Literally, Bible lesson from Jesus himself, where he's like, all right, we're gonna start with Genesis. I'm gonna work you all the way through it and show you how all of it points to me. It's incredible. And Jesus is showing these guys and showing to you and me, look, Jesus, the, and specifically the crucifixion and the resurrection are the hinge point of all history. That the crucifixion, the resurrection, this moment, it's the hinge point of all history. He, he goes back and says, guys, everything that the scriptures teach us about from the creation of the world to the promises of God, to the right to sin entering the world, but then the promise of God that one day someone's gonna be born of a woman who's gonna crush the head of the serpent to the giving of the law, to the kings in Israel, the priests and the sacrificial system, everything, it is foreshadowing, pointing us the prophecies that straight up tell us, right? It's all pointing towards Jesus. It's all about him. And the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's the, the climax of redemptive history. And we look back at everything before it is looking forward towards it. Everything after it is looking back to that moment, what God did to save you and me. And of course, then looking forward to the consummation when Jesus returns and he makes all things new and wipes every tear from the eyes of those who are his when he comes back for his people. But the crucifixion, right? The resurrection, these are the, the hinge point. And Jesus walks them through the Old Testament and says, guys, these aren't a bunch of random stories with some moral lessons. They are all pointing to Jesus, his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection that brings us new life. And so verse 28, it says, they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going farther and but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went with them to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. It's very reminiscent, that language, very reminiscent of uh, the Lord's Supper, right? And so he sits and he eats a meal with them. And as, as he's now walked them through the scriptures and they've listened to the word of God, 
And then they fellowship with Jesus himself. Verse 31 says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And God grants them that ability to truly see him. And then it says, and he vanished from their sight. And listen to verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I love, and it's an important point, the moment that God opens their eyes and they see Jesus and they see the truth and they experience, they begin telling others. The next step is you begin telling others, right? Jesus has brought you new life. He saved you. That is not something you keep private. That is something you share. When you are surprised by joy, when you experience such joy, the natural reaction, you go tell others about it. Hey, you need to experience this. And that should be true for the Christian. If we've been raised to new life with Christ and our sin washed away, why would we not tell others? Why would we not share that with others and tell them, man, there's new life found in Christ? Let me close with this. To the Christian, here's my hope for us this morning. As we finish Luke's gospel and we see this, and Jesus has not just been crucified, but resurrected, I hope that we are reminded of the incredible hope that we have beyond the grave. I said it earlier, death is the final enemy. For all of human existence, right, we've been trying to figure out how to escape or forestall death, right? The death comes for all of us. And yet in Christ, because of Jesus, we need not fear. The scriptures tell us that death has lost its sting, has lost its victory because of Christ. And for those of us who are in him, we know, yes, that day is coming where we will close our eyes in this life but we have the promise. And through faith, we know that that's not the end. It's not eternal nothingness and it's not condemnation on the far side of the grave. It is us closing our eyes in this life and opening them in the next and seeing Jesus face to face. And that one day he'll return and he will raise us physically, bodily as he was raised. He will raise us to new life with him and we will be with him forever in joy. That's our hope and it's incredible. And for those of us then who uh, you're listening today, you may not have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've been around Christ your whole life, around the church, but you've never known him, never truly seen him for who he is. Or maybe all of this is new to you today. My hope and my prayer for you has been really verse 32, that as we explain these things, as we've walked through it, your heart would burn within you. And that God would stir that in you to show you, man, that he's calling you into his family and that Jesus came for you, and that you don't have to keep making the same mistakes. You don't have to live the same way. You do not have to walk in shame or condemnation anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If today you will turn from your sin, stop trying to justify yourself, but just cast yourself on the mercy of God, you can be made new. You can be washed clean. The old you, that old person, the old man or woman can be crucified with Christ and a new creation can be raised with him. That's available to you today by grace through faith. The question is, will you turn? Will you turn from your sin 
And will you trust Jesus with your life? Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray for those of us who are believers in you, God, for the church. That Lord, you would remind us of the incredible hope that we have. Hope beyond the grave. Life eternal and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, we can never repay you. We can simply recognize that you gave your life for us. And so we gladly give our lives back to you. Use us, Father, in any way that you see fit. And thank you that you are a good father. And then, Lord, I pray for any who are listening right now who don't have a relationship with you, who started listening to this message and they have not been reconciled to you. They have never surrendered uh, to the love and the lordship of Jesus. God, I pray for them right now. And if that's you, I just want to speak to you directly as we pray. If you want to pray with me, you can take that step right now to confess your sin to God and to profess your faith in him. To say, Lord, I, I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. You can pray with me. It's not magical words, it's just the expression of your heart, but you can say uh, something to the long, along the lines of, uh, Lord, I know that I'm a savior or a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I'm not trying to justify or rationalize what I've done. I just need you. And today I believe that Jesus is the savior who was crucified and raised again for me. And today I surrender to your lordship and to your love. And from this day forward, I ask for the forgiveness of my sins. And from this day forward, I wanna follow you every day of my life. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen and amen.